0: Wes Unselt entered the NBA in 1969 with a storm in his first year out of Louisville. Unselt became the second player in NBA history to win MVP and Rookie of the Year honors in the same season, leading the Baltimore Bullets to the league's best record. Standing only 6'7", the shortest of the great centers, Wes muscled his way to more than 1,000 rebounds in eight of his 13 seasons and made a living of the outlet pass. Joining forces with Elvin Hayes, Unseld took the Bullets to two consecutive NBA Finals against the Seattle Supersonics. The Bullets celebrated their only world title in 1978, with Unseld collecting Finals MVP. Unseld remained a Bullet after retirement in 1981, serving as Vice President and Head Coach. He became a Hall of Famer in 1987. Wes
1: Unseld passing away. The family issuing a uh, statement this morning. Wes Unseld's 74 years old and not as well-known, PK, if he'd come along a decade later when the uh, you know, Magic and uh, Bird were elevating the league, people would know him a lot more. Now, you could argue that the Celtics were so dominant that maybe his bullet teams would have ended up like the Milwaukee Bucks teams where you know, if you really followed the league, you knew they were really good, but they just couldn't break through. And, uh, and then Celtics just uh, ruled things. But Unseld to the NBA Finals four times during his career and the championship. That was from NBA Entertainment right there. Wes Unseld is a big name in pro basketball in the 1970s, and he just passed away this morning
2: at the age of 74. Yeah, I would think that most people who are into the NBA would know his name. It would be surprising to me that they wouldn't. I mean, he was... He was tough guy before there was tough guy that went about telling you that he was tough guy. <laughs> exactly.
1: <laughs> so, it was news when the Pistons I mean, were tough in the eighties, but in the seventies. Yeah.
2: A six seven with a scowl right. on his face. But, and you and, think and in s- the two headed outlet two handed yeah. outlet pass? You think how many dominant big men there were
1: in the '70s, right? Bill Walton, for all his injuries, uh, you know, had an MVP and a title, and uh, you know, two or three really good years there before his body started breaking down. Kareem was in the league all the way through the '70s. Wilt Chamberlain was there for the first half of the '70s, and there were other players along the way. And at six seven, uh, you know, he held down the paint on a bunch of really good teams, thousand rebounds a year. And not in an era now where you're getting, you know, then you had maybe one guy who went back on defense and the other four guys tried to go get an offensive board. So there were a lot of bodies banging around in the paint. They weren't spread out by a three-point line. So you got a 1,000 rebounds then. You were battling guys for them. Whereas now, some, def- some rebounds aren't contested at all. Occasionally they're contested, you know, there's one guy going to the offensive glass while four guys get back.
2: Yeah, I think the counter to that is that the guys shoot better today. Yes, they so do. So there's fewer rebounds to be had. So there was more rebounds to be had then. And the, uh,
1: the rebounds so that, that, now are also going to guards because a, a three-point is a long rebound, and it, you know if, if it bangs off the rim, the, the, the big guy isn't going to get it because that thing's going to carry him 15, 20 feet from the hoop. It's not an, an That's eight. not to
2: take anything away from him because i got his stats up now, and in the 13 seasons, even his last season at age 34, he averaged 10.7 boards. Every single season except one. He did not average uh, at least double figures in rebounds, and that was a season in which he only played 56 games, so he must have had some injuries. And he was nine two. Now he comes in the league at a little about 22 years of age, and averages 18.2 boards and 13.8 points. And what's amazing is that uh, he only led the league in a rebounding once, because they have it. If it's boldface, that means you led the mm-hmm. league. And so his first season, he has 18.2 rebounds a game. He did not lead the league. Somebody else must have in 68, 69. Oh, actually, what, where, I'm,
1: where I'm looking at, the 18.2 is the one year he did lead
2: the league. Oh, where I'm looking at, it's 14.8, basketballreference.com. Okay. I'll trust you. They got you. it highlighted. I'll trust basketball in reference. In 74-75, he what? had 14.8 boards, and that led the league.
1: He came in and uh, turned them around. and they went,
2: 68, 69. Yeah, they won 57
1: okay. games. And they and won did, their
2: only title with Dick Mata, who's a local guy, right? Yeah,
1: Weber State guy. And uh, Phil Johnson was talking about him when we had Phil on after uh, Jerry passed away. Dick Mata is kind of how Phil and Jerry got connected. That uh, Jerry, yeah. was, Jerry was playing for Dick Mata and the Bulls, and Phil knew Dick Mata from Weber State. Phil had been a star player at Utah State. And... Uh, started coaching at Weber State and had the job because Dick Mata went off to the NBA and he said he would go coach at their training camp because they didn't have assistant coaches and staffs in those days like they do now. Maybe he had one assistant coach. I think Phil told us that Dick had none. Um, Zero assistants? in the Yeah. that uh, The late Tom Nasalke was the only assistant on the Bucks in 71. Jerry would have been playing. This is be in the 60s. Uh, so before... You know, you go back five years or so where Jerry's younger in his career. Um, I'd have to go see what year Dick Mata took that Bulls job. I don't know that. Uh, but Phil would go to the training camps. And so he either had zero-one assistant, and Phil would either be the second pair of eyes or a third pair. Uh, either way, compared to these days, you know, <laughs> any any help was uh, was a positive. And so that's where they came together was with Dick Mata. And then Dick coached those Last two uh, teams, the, there were four, Unsell took four teams, was a star in four teams that went to the finals. But those last two in the late 70s, late in his career, they played the Sonics two years in a row, and both clubs won, won
2: once. Motto's a beat digger, went to Jordan.
1: The beat diggers.
2: Yeah. Classic. And move. did you know he coached at the highest level, obviously? He coached at high school, college and pro and he did not play college high school or pro basketball
1: i didn't know he didn't play high school i knew he hadn't played college ball um i think that that had been kind of been a thing but i did not know that he hadn't even played high school basketball i just assumed he did honestly oh trying
2: to make the beat digger ball club back then <laughs> are you kidding me <laughs> it's legendary it's just workouts you You didn't walk into what is now Jordan Commons and say, boys, I'm on this team, this (laughs) offense runs through me. That didn't work. I mean, do some history, Sniggy, and know about the Beat Digger basketball. I'll get on that. Because, as I understand it, that was the only high school west of the freeway that was probably uh, anything close to uh, not being in downtown. I mean, apparently it was the lone high school. on that side of town for a good long while. And uh, so if you were anywhere near in the south area, you went to that high school. So, yeah, he didn't coach. I mean, he didn't play any of that stuff and still managed to work his way up at the highest level. That's pretty impressive. Still living, 88 years old.
1: You know that about some of the older schools in Utah because in most cases the, the name of the district is the name of the original high school. And they're all, you know, farm communities, and so they were drawn from miles around. Uh, Granite High, which doesn't exist anymore, Murray High, Jordan, uh, you know, those were some of the early schools. Uh, West was the first, and it was Salt Lake City, and then it was Salt Lake City West when they opened East. But, uh, yeah, oh,
3: Jordan is one that. of the originals.
1: Uh, doing high school stories over the years, it, it became clear. I did When I first got here, it was one of the first stories I did. I was probably... I would have been there like about two or three months because I got hired in late August. And West had a really good team that year. And so I went over there and did it. And it hadn't been good in a long time. And so I went over there and did a story. And they took me into the trophy room. And I pulled out some of the old trophies. And I have a list of all the championships. And um, I think it was... Uh, with like the 19-teens or something, and they won like eight of the ten titles, and, and then you find out, well, there were like four schools. You know, they were playing Ogden, and East came along eventually, and they were playing Jordan. That was one of the other schools. I think Provo was one of the early schools. Um, yeah, so that's how I knew it, digging it up for that story.
0: Ah, well, that's freaking fascinating. Yeah,
1: and that was when Holtry was the coach, and his son was the tight end. Don, I think, was the coach's name. And then, now we're talking
2: football? I was talking basketball. Now we're talking football?
1: Right. Well, I was doing a football story when I did this, but it holds, I mean, they were in schools, so, yes. They were the early basketball schools as well, but I was doing a football story. Because, uh, yeah, Holtry had a good team. I think it was, I'm think i pretty sure it was Don. And then what was his son's name? It was a tight end. He went to Michigan. Jeff. And, and then he came back to and played two years at BYU. I believe it was Jeff. Yeah, Jeff. So... So they, were, they, had, uh, they had an undefeated team, and then I think they had another team that lost late in the playoffs. I don't know, semis or finals, whatever. They were really good. How are they now? Uh, they were way down, and now I think they're on the way back up. They had a new coach who'd been part of the staff at East, and he was going back and keeping some of the kids home because uh, a lot of the best players who had lived in the west boundaries were going to East. So I think they're, I getting, I think they're getting a little better.
2: I had an administrator tell me, because I covered high schools, not so much here in Utah occasionally, but working my way up in Arizona and California, uh, going up the food chain. You, know, you start covering high schools and work your way up and all that stuff, so I certainly have a lot of background in that. And I had an administrator in Arizona tell me one time that he really believed that if your team had a good football team, it made the school a 1,000 times better. He said it was very, very important that they had a great football coach and they had a great team because he said that it would set the tone. And this is someone who had many years of experience. And so he's telling me, he said, I'm just a kid, barely in a business. And he's telling me that he had found through, uh, you know, nothing really formal, but just through his own informal knowledge of being an administrator and an educator for many years, you know, upwards of the 30 years, that if the team was good, the school year went a lot smoother, and I was, I was interested in that and intrigued by that, you know, what would make the difference, and he said that the kids feel a sense of pride, there's order, there's more discipline, those boys who are on the football team, in order to be good, usually, not always, but usually, that you have your life in order, you're serious about academics, and, uh, you know, you're not running around getting yourself in trouble, that type of thing, and so they end up being school leaders, and then kids, particularly the younger kids, look up to them. I mean, I know when I was a... When I first started high school, when I was a freshman, we only had juniors, and... Those juniors to me, I, I, I and when I was a freshman, I, I went out for football, basketball, and baseball. I played them all, all three, right? And then just concentrated on baseball the next three years. But when I was a freshman, those guys who were the studs on football, they were like semi-gods to me. You know? I'm 13 years old. And even though they're, what, 16, 17, they seems so much older, I so know. much bigger. <laughs> I know. <laughs> and, like, they were men. And here I was, this little boy, and so I looked up to them. And so this guy, this administrator, was telling me that that's what happens, and you have more kids who want to do what's right, and you the more kids you have trying to do the things that they're supposed to be doing as young kids makes everything better. So he put a lot of emphasis on having a good football team and setting the tone for the academic year and having a lot of kids follow. And he really believed that. I can't say if it's true or not, but I know well, he really believed that, and that's what he was telling me, and it made sense in theory.
1: So my dad was a high school teacher for 36 years, and he taught at uh, schools down in the district he went to in the South Bay in San Diego, and uh, Sweetwater School District, and he went to Sweetwater High School, one of those old high schools that has the same name as the district. But he was teaching at uh, Benita Vista when I was a kid, and I would go to the games, and, you know, and I'm in elementary school, and I'm in awe of high school football players. You know, now it looks, I look back now and it's the dumbest thing ever. But, you know, when you're seven, a 17-year-old seems like a grown up, especially if he's playing a sport that you're just fascinated by. And I heard dad talk about schools a lot. And a lot of the stuff he said, you know, as I grew up, as I went to school, as my kids went to school, and you get involved in the schools, I mean, his words just come ringing back. You know, they're so spot on. But I never heard him say anything like that. And he was usually, because he was a sports fan, he was usually friends with whoever the coaches were. And not just in the popular sports, he was friends with, you know, the track coach and stuff, right? Not just football and basketball. And I had never heard anything about that. And you blurted that out. And I know, well, and, and you do. I mean, sometimes you just blurt stuff out and you're being entertaining and, you know, you're being goofy and you're just making stuff up to get a reaction. But I knew when you said that 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 was a serious take and i had never heard it and so it, i didn't really pursue it but i was standing on the sideline and you know how i am pk right and there's an administrator and he's a little bored and he's standing on the sideline and we're, and we're talking and you know i'm going to talk for a whole quarter right and so we're standing there and i just and there's a little pause in conversation like i feel stupid throwing this out and this guy may laugh at me but i gotta know when pk said that it always stayed with me and so i asked him Hey, I heard this theory that, you know, blah, 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 about having a better year. And he looked at me and he laughed and, and I felt like two inches tall. And he goes, of course, but no one who works in schools understands that. And the, the school I was at was a school that was r- traditionally really good in football. But the administrators move around. Yeah. So he was at this school for, I don't know, however I mean, this is a guy, I, I wouldn't even know. the I, For a million bucks, I couldn't tell you the guy's name. I can kind of see him in my mind, but I have no idea his name. It was very random that I was standing next to him, and and he said, "Yeah, when I'm at when I was you know the last school I was at, we weren't very good, and it absolutely impacts the mood in the hallway." And his deal was that it impacts the mood kids bring to the school; that it just brings an energy to the hallway that's positive positive. and when you're in a bad mood you're more likely to complain you're more likely to lash out you're more likely to be distracted you're not and when you're in a good mood you do what's asked of you you get all and it just it just like it just changes the energy it's and it's weird because when you think about that abstractly i mean a football team is one of a million things going on at a school why does it have that power it shouldn't There's way more, way more, dozens and dozens of more important things happening at schools than the football team. And yet here's a lifelong administrator I've never met. And I throw this random theory at him and he laughs like, yeah, obviously it does. It just it creates some kind of air and energy and and people feed off it. And it, it makes life better. And it makes and that makes it easier. Let's be honest. It makes it easier.
2: Yeah, and that's why it was it was really good that your school had you as the quarterback. Nope.
1: I was tiny. I didn't play football. I you were to. tiny? Oh, yeah. When freshman tryouts, I, I would have gone out for football at 5'5", five, five, 110 pounds. <laughs> yeah? So?
2: <laughs> because like you, I went to school too early. A year hey, early. Hey, uh- it ain't the size of the dog, it's the <laughs> dog of the size, or something. What's that phrase? Help me out there. It
1: ain't the size of the dog in the fight; it's the size of the fight in the dog. Yeah, yeah five, five, I had it ballpark. Five, <laughs> five sure. Five, five, <laughs> one, ten. I was exactly what Coach was five, looking five, for. Five, one, ten. Ah, uh, Darren
2: back. Sproles, buddy. Come on, say, man. Yeah.
1: yeah. Okay. Okay. Dar- then Darren Sproles' speed versus my speed. Not so happening. then, you,
2: then you did wrestling, then because size doesn't matter. I did basketball. Oh, <laughs> that didn't make any sense. Five, Size five, five, matters.
1: It, you I, were five five one ten. What yeah. was the difference? I'll tell you exactly what the difference was. My dad. You were chicken. That was my the difference. dad. My dad was. There's a story about that. There was. Um, my dad was friends with a basketball coach at Benita Vista High, and my father loathed, as much as he loved sports, he loathed you sports for all the reasons you think he did, and. Wouldn't let me. He had not grown up playing organized sports, so he wouldn't let me. So even though I wanted to go out for the baseball team, I hadn't stood in the batter's box and seen that curveball. What do high school kids throw? They throw 70, 80 miles an hour, depending on you know, what grade you are and how old they are and all that. To now, 102. Yeah, okay, well, back then, PK, I'm old. So... <laughs> So I didn't have the confidence to go, I didn't have the size, I didn't have the confidence, but I had been in this basketball league clinic thing, and it was only an hour and a half on like six Saturdays, and it was 45 minutes of instruction and then 45-minute games. And it was from like third to sixth grade, but I learned enough that I had enough skill that it basically came down to dribbling with my left hand. And that got me on a bad high school basketball team. That was just enough to make it. And only because it sucked so bad. There was one guy who could really play. It was one guy who was really a player. But they kept 24 guys on a high school team. And looking, I didn't realize at the time, but looking back, they're like, none of these guys can play. We'll bring them all to practice and coach them up, and we'll see who sticks with it and who quits. And none of them are really good enough to sweat over. And it was just, you know... Throw as many guys into the into the team as possible, and just see what happens. And we were never really any good, and we didn't, you know, we didn't have winning records. We had losing records. We were terrible. We finished in the bottom third of the league every year.
2: And that's why you didn't wrestle.
1: I should have wrestled. Our wrestling team was awesome. Finished fourth in the state of California with a fourth thousand, in the state of California a thousand high schools. Yeah, all a the thousand high schools, yeah, man. It was awesome. That's right. like in the top ten percent. All right. See, that's when you're throwing out the nonsense just for comedy's <laughs> sake right there. All right, DJ and PK, uh, when we come back, there are people who need your help. How can you help? Well, you can come to the arena, for starters, and do something. We'll tell you about it next. Stay with us.
3: And now, Attention. Top of the Wire One. on 97.5, 1280 The Zone and The Zone Sports Network.
1: Oklahoma City Thunder owner Clay Bennett reportedly very vocal on the NBA's Board of Governors call last Friday talking about why the league and owners need to consider the competitive and financial plights of smaller market teams that could be left out of the season's summer resumption in Orlando. Bennett wondering if there's any way to bring back all 30 teams instead of just 16 or 22. Major League Baseball has discussed playing a shorter schedule in which it would pay members of the Major League Baseball Players Association their full prorated salaries according to reports. MLB does not intend to formally propose it to the players. The possibility of implementing a schedule of around 50 games that would start in July has been considered by the league as a last resort. Former Auburn head coach and AD Pat Dye passed away yesterday at the age of 80 and Wes Unseld, NBA great, has passed away this morning at the age of 74. Top of the Wire is brought to you by Syringa Networks, home to complete business telecom and IT solutions backed by an industry leading SLA that guarantees the uptime your business needs. It's effective communications for 21st century Utah. Get started now at syringanetworks.net. Now,
2: let's get this party started.
3: This is Hans Olsen and Scotty G on the Zone Sports Network.
0: You ever think you could have been a competitive eater? No. Take the structure out of it. I could eat a half-gallon ice cream right now.
3: Okay, how quick?
0: In uh, 20 minutes. That's one segment, Lloyd. Are we ready to do this on the air? Now? The thing is, it's just not my thing anymore. You yeah. just threw it out there that you could eat a half-gallon ice cream in 20 minutes. Yeah, well, you could jump on a donkey naked and ride it. But, but it's not do you, your thing anymore. Do you, you, <laughs> is it your thing? Do you want to do it? Okay, how many mozzarella sticks could you eat in one sitting in one sitting in 20 minutes probably 20. I've got a half gallon of ice cream in front of me and Scotty's got 20 mozzarella sticks in front of him who finishes first. Do either one of us finish and Lloyd's got a donkey.
3: (laughs) Hanson Scotty weekdays from 10 to 2 on 97.5 1280 The Zone in the Zone Sports Network.
1: Join the big show Friday Friday from 2 to 6. They're going to be at the warehouse, 86 East University Parkway in Orm. Prices so low, it'll blow your mind. DJ PK, and we are joined now by Don Sterling, now the new executive director of the Miller Family Office. He has worn multiple hats in his time with the Miller Organization and the Utah Jazz, now running the Miller Family Office. Don, good morning.
4: Good morning, guys. How are you? Good.
1: Uh, we got you on to talk about the blood drive, and we'll talk about that in just a second. But first, I'm curious, the Miller family office. So what are you doing exactly? What does the family office do?
4: Uh, I know a lot of people think a family office is simply a location where the family gathers. <laughs> but it is, uh, it is far more than that. If, if you look at, obviously, the Miller family owns the Larry H. Miller group of companies. And that is their, their family business. The family office really takes care of and uh, tends to the business of the family. It can range from uh, philanthropic efforts, uh, education, career development, obviously financial matters and investments, but it is that um, entity, that organization that works directly with um, all members of the Miller family to to provide them opportunities to provide them uh, the resources they need to go about being great humans and living productive lives.
2: Now, Don, we've known you for a long time. We need to explain to people that you're not that Don Sterling. (laughs) Yes.
4: (laughs) Yes, especially in this day. No, those, were, uh, those were some tough days back then, and, and Commissioner Silver and the league's done a great job moving on from that, and yet here we are again today dealing with some very important matters, and hopefully everybody uh, is having a softening of their heart and a desire to understand and to reach out.
1: All right, so uh, I was walking out of the uh, radio station, and uh, I think a lot of people know because they've been to jazz games, but if you haven't been to a jazz game in the upper bowl, the radio studios are up on the fifth floor, and some of you walk by them going to your seats when you're going to games. And I walked out, and I heard some music. And, of course, you know, the arena's pretty much been a ghost town here for about three months. Uh, There's a few people back in it now, but for a while there literally weren't even a dozen people in it. Uh, at any given time. But to hear music coming out of the arena, I thought, what is going on? I <laughs> turned and walked in, and of course I looked down and immediately realized, well, of course, I knew they were having a blood drive here. I didn't know exactly where it was going to be or what it was going to look like, but it's actually on the arena floor. The scoreboard's there, and it's all lit up with the blood drive info and stuff, and their table's set up, and they got music, and there were people moving around down there. And uh, So explain the the how the blood drive got started, why you're doing it on the... scale you're doing it and doing it in the arena.
4: This actually uh, was a conversation that started towards the end of April with uh, Gail Miller and Greg Miller and the family uh, and and other members of our organization of what can we do at this moment where we now see that the uh, COVID-19 reality is going to be much more of a marathon than a sprint. Uh, what can we do to really impact people? So under the umbrella of Driven to Assist, as you may recall, we, we first did the, the food drive with the Utah Food Bank, and we'd had a goal of six, 7,000 pounds, 8,000 pounds, which is, you know, four tons. We ended up uh, collecting 23,000 pounds, uh, nearly 12 tons of food. Our dealerships, theaters uh, were involved. The... Uh, Vivint Smart Home Arena, and Smith's Ballpark. But as part of those conversations, we also knew and recognized that there was going to be a need for blood, especially as the economy started to open up, uh, elective surgeries were going to start happening, and frankly, more people are on the streets driving and having activities, and therefore there are more accidents and the need for blood. So we we put a really what was an extraordinary working group together that started at the top with Dr. Angela Dunn, the state epidemiologist. Uh, We partnered with the American Red Cross, ARUP, um, Intermountain Health, uh, University of Utah Health, HCA, which is St. Mark's, and and Stewart Health. Um, And our own our own people, the arena people have just been fantastic. But we knew that if we wanted to do something significant, we needed to do it on a larger scale. But at the same time, we knew we needed to make it absolutely safe and and uh, sanitized and uh, respectful of all the restrictions around COVID-19. So starting yesterday was the first day. We, we are going all week. Uh, we will go through Friday, June 5th. It goes from 8 a.m. to 6 p.m. Um, we... Uh, It is open to the public. Although we ask that, if possible, if at all possible, you go to redcrossblood.org, redcrossblood.org, something easy to remember, and uh, use the sponsor code LHM, and to sign up for an appointment. We we wanted to. Our goal is 900 appointments through the week, and and yesterday uh, at the end of yesterday, we were at 457 uh yes yesterday we had over uh 150 people come in and give a unit of blood i will tell you you too and i challenge you i was one of them uh i was able to give blood and it went well it was a great experience the american red cross handle it uh in a fantastic efficient uh clean way so it's a good start
2: how long's the process
4: take Don? You know, I walked in, um, you, uh, let me take you through it. You walk in, they take your temperature, you want to make sure that there's no, uh, no temperatures walking into the building. Uh, you get a little, you, you check in, you go downstairs, there's about a 15 minute uh, check-in process uh, that takes place. And then I would say PK end to end on the table is about 15 to 20 minutes, Maybe it was, I, I felt maybe a little longer. It was, uh, I was, uh, frankly, you know, giving blood is not something everybody on the planet likes to do or think about. But I will tell you, uh, the American Red Cross made it so easy. Um, and and uh, they, they uh, explain every step of the way. There's tons of treats after if you need a little, uh, need a little boost of energy. But uh, I bet all in, it was 45 minutes-ish.
1: They're not lying about the treats. I've given blood.
4: Always good treats.
1: Really good treats. <laughs> quality quality cookies, beverages. Hit them up.
4: But I will tell you, it was uh, – um, and, and look, we've had a tough weekend. And at, at one point, we thought, should we continue to do our blood drive? And collectively, we felt – Look, this is a unifying effort, this is a unifying activity, and if, if our community is out there wondering what they can do in, in the midst of some of the challenges we're having, we, we invite you to go help people, and this is one of the ways we can do that. We, we found out and I learned that every unit of blood, and that's what you give, you give a unit of blood, nice little baggie of blood. Uh, La- it, it can serve up to three people so 900 units could help 2,700 people in the community throughout the state of Utah. This bloods going to serve all 37 hospitals in the state and uh, like I said, can't thank American Red Cross and our partners on this for making it happen. but it's only Tuesday. We've got to finish strong. We got to get to that <laughs> to that 900 appointment and if we can do more than that great.
2: I remember Don, when your father passed, which I think is about five years ago or so, yes. uh, and he was in sports management, he had a very interesting background, uh, sports writer, sports talk show host. Now, I, I happen to know, if you worked as a sports writer and then became a sports radio talk show host, you're a special human being. Uh, um, I'm not naming names, but if you were able to do both of those things, then you really are something special in You point. know,
4: PK, I may have not have ever told you this, but... Uh, when when I was growing up, he, he was a sports writer for the Oakland Tribune. And yes. then was hi- hired by Al Davis at the Oakland Raiders. He said, Donnie, later in your life you're going to meet some people like me and you need to show them the utmost respect. <laughs> wow. <laughs> that, that's why I'm here with you,
1: boys. You are just as full of it as PK is. That's amazing.
2: I thought
4: you were only
1: about, you know, two-thirds as full of it.
2: <laughs> what I was going to say is I remember reading – at the time correct me if i'm wrong but he was credited as one of the founders of fantasy football
4: that is correct um, what was that well it, it, it and i often say geez if he had just put a patent on it i'd be on scholarship <laughs> the rest of my life uh, he he was with uh ch- um, um, two other people bill Winkenbach, who was a minority owner of the oakland raiders and George Ross, who actually was the, the editor, sports editor of the Oakland Tribune. In the old days, when, when teams, this was when it was still the AFL, the Raiders would go on a road trip. It's not like today where you go back, you know, out and back. When they would go to the East Coast, they played three, to, three teams at the time. They, they played the New York Jets, the Boston Patriots, and the Buffalo Bills. And they would be gone for three weeks. They would fly out, they would stay out and play those three games and then come home after being on the road for three weeks, if you can imagine. Wow. And so one night uh, they're, in a, they're in New York City and there may have been some refreshments involved. I can't confirm that. <laughs> but they had the idea uh, to take, what if we had a draft and you draft it AFL players, and then created a, a, a point system. This is probably six, 1961, 1962, and out of that came um, what they called Goppel, the Greater Oakland Pigskin Prognosticators League. Goppel, pretty clever name, but they they created. And the rules of the game still, uh, you can still find them. Uh, NFL Network did a show a few years ago on the whole creation of of fantasy football and credited George Ross and Bill Winkenbach and my dad with the creation of what is now fantasy football. In fact, they still have uh, the original document that has the draft picks of each of the members of the original couple. So that is is, a... one of the great things that if you if you google fantasy football Scotty Sterling it will come up
1: <laughs> that is spectacular
4: it is, isn't that I mean who knew who knew the genius of sports
2: writer slash sports radio talk show host it, it never ends
4: PK it is unending. <laughs>
2: You need to have Don on more.
1: I think think that's actually true, despite my obvious reservations. Uh, P.K. knows how I am, and I don't know if this is uh, just because the Raiders sucked at the time or because it was just such a lousy idea. But they did those three-week trips every year. I've been looking at the schedule while you're talking because, of course, I have. And this is is phenomenal. This would never fly now. The complaints would be outrageous. I mean, this is the equivalent of putting an NBA team... Well, I guess the Spurs do it with the rodeo road trip. That would be maybe the one comparison you could come up with.
4: But imagine... Imagine a group of young men... Out on the road for three weeks straight. <laughs> I mean, yeah. it, it, uh, and, and just, anyway, it just was a, uh, was, there's just an innocence to it, to the league then, I mean, compared to the way it is now, but they thought nothing of it. And they, and they were flying commercial everywhere they went.
2: Mm-hmm. Right. Well, what it does, Don, it screams of the stories that Jerry Sloan used to tell. Versus what's going on now, because it was a similar thing, similar circumstances that Jerry was playing under when he was in the league with uh, when he started in Baltimore, and then obviously with the Chicago Bulls, with the number of games that they were playing and flying commercial and all that stuff. I mean, we know all those stories, and that's what they were doing back then.
4: Absolutely. Well, uh, first of all, let me say I was I lived, grew up in the Bay Area, and I would go to Warriors games, and I remember when the Bulls came in. And they had, arguably, arguably still to this day, maybe the toughest backcourt physically of any team with Jerry and Norm Van Sloan. Van Leer, uh, or Norm Van uh, Leer. Sorry, uh, Norm Van Leer and and Jerry Sloan. You did not want to play them. You did not want to play them. But even my my dad served as uh, VP of operations for the league, so he's over player ops, and this was. He took that job in 82, so during those, those early to, to mid eighty probably longer than that. But the rule was um, you, you teams weren't flying private at that point. right? And so the rule was whatever the, the first flight out mm-hmm. to the next city you were going to, that was the flight you had to take. So you could play a game in one city, and if you were going to the – had a game in another city on a roadie, you couldn't take the midday flight. You couldn't take the late afternoon flight, even if you had a day in between. You had to take the first flight out. 6 a.m. So, I mean, if you can imagine, it's – and and you – you can, uh, you can envision players that had shorter careers. If they played today, they probably – look, this is lengthened careers. Yeah. This is I lengthened no careers because of the, the physical demands. They've created ways to offset those physical demands.
2: Before we let you go, Don, you you know, your father was in the business. You've been in the business. You talk about attending games as a child. So you, you have a lot of background here. One of the themes that we've been hitting here this week is the idea, we had Steve Cleveland on talking about it, the idea of sports being able to be a great unifier. Could you maybe amplify that, some of the experiences that you saw bringing people from all sorts of backgrounds? We talked about, hey, maybe if there was a jazz game, on last saturday night who knows maybe it wouldn't have been as bad people would have at the very minimum they would have been maybe have some interest occupied but the greater good of of folks from different backgrounds from the fan perspective in addition obviously to the players but coming together and finding some common ground that sports can bring
4: yeah i look i since i was very very young um, there was always something about communities getting together and, and rooting for their team or rooting for their country that that brings people together. We, we love our team. We love our guys. We love to see them compete. And when the focus turns from whatever may, we may be happening in our own lives, and, and life gets tough, and these are, these are challenges that we need to address that are going on right now. But when our teams take the floor, take the field, um, suddenly the people next to us, we're, we're all on the same team then, because we're unified in our support of what's happening on the floor, or happening on the, on the field of play. That's why the Olympics are so extraordinary. And, and, and look, NBA basketball, I, I just love this game, and we've all been going through withdrawals. Um, it's been fun to watch, watch some of our repeat games on, uh, on, on AT&T Sportsnet. First of all, you can relax because you know you're going to win the game, no matter <laughs> if, if we're having a bad run at a certain part. At least I know we're going to win. But, and, and we miss it. We miss our guys. Um, you know, the, having been involved with the 2002 Olympic Winter Games and the Olympic movement, we used to say we don't know where the stories will come from, but they always do. There's always something that, that emanates from sports competition where, where an individual, a, a man or a woman, a boy or a girl, steps up beyond their own abilities and has the performance of a lifetime. And then you learn more about that person, and it connects us as, as humans and, and as a community. And that's why the sooner we can get back in a safe and thoughtful way, I'm all in. I'm all in. I can't, I can't wait to see the Utah Jazz on the floor again. Can't wait to see the bees at the ballpark. Um, it brings us together. Thank you.
1: We'll leave it right there, Don. We appreciate the time. Hey, one more time, for the people who want to come to the arena and uh, walk around down on the floor. The, the basketball floor isn't down. They're, they're on the concrete floor underneath that, uh, obviously. But uh, how,
4: to, uh, how to get uh, time reserved and get all hooked up. Terrific. Thank you. Um, today through Friday at Vivant Smart Home Arena, 8 a.m. to 6 p.m. It's the Driven to Assist Blood Drives in coordination with the American Red Cross. Um, if uh, they are taking walk-ups, if you're in the area and, and, and get a hankering to go help and and give blood, you can, you can walk up. We encourage everyone though to set an appointment and you can set an appointment by going to redcrossblood.org. Redcrossblood.org, use the sponsor code LHM. It's an easy process. Um, uh, like I said, I gave yesterday, and it was, a, it was a, a, a comfortable experience and a great experience from the folks at American Red Cross. And, we just, and, and one more thing, D.J. and in, in P.K., you said it. One of the things that Greg Miller said was we're going to do well by doing good. People will give blood. But it also gives a chance for people to come back into our home, into Vivant Smart Home Arena, where we have such fond memories and affection for this place for games for concerts for ice shows so many of us have such singular memories of things that have gone on in this building and we haven't been able to visit it this is an opportunity to come back to uh to a home that's comfortable to us and be able to do some good by giving blood
1: Don, thanks for a few minutes. Thanks for a little fantasy football, three-game AFL road trips, (laughs) and other assorted
4: bits of information. Thanks, guys. Appreciate the support, and uh, always good to be with you.
1: Don Sterling. He's the new executive director of the uh, Miller family office. DJ and PK, it's 97.5 and 12.80 to the zone. Ben Anderson, Utah Jazz radio studio analyst used to see Ben at games all the time. Now there haven't been games to see Ben at. We'll talk with him coming up in about 10 minutes about restarting the NBA. Stay with us on 97.5 and 1280 The Zone.
3: Take The Zone with you wherever you go. Let's go. Download the all-new Zone Sports Network app on your phone and get live streaming of The Zone as well as podcast editions of every show. From Salt Lake to Shanghai, Provo to Portugal, or Ogden to Oslo. Wherever you go, we'll tag along. Let's go. Download the new Zone app by searching Zone Sports Network wherever you shop for apps. It's the Zone Sports Network app. From 97.5, 1280, The Zone, and The Zone Sports Network.
1: DJ and PK is brought to you in part by WCF Insurance, reminding you to be careful out there. PK, this is unusual. We have a very – first off, sports radio, you know, 20 years ago, it was all about phone calls. And now they're occasional. There's a few hardcore, lots of shows. Lots of shows on lots of stations and lots of markets. Don't take any. Our show does a number of them, though. Our show probably does more than, than most, right? Uh, but we don't usually have people calling back a half hour later because of something we were talking about. But we were talking about Wes Unseld, who passed away. The family issued a statement this morning. NBA great – uh, champion four trips to the finals he's mvp he was a rookie of the year he was a prolific rebounder at six seven uh and frank has called us because he had some west unsold uh stories or memories to share frank you are unusually motivated i'm curious uh why you're so motivated Calling back a half hour later
5: well, I'm just walking around Costco shopping, so I thought I'd call and tell, <laughs> okay. tell you guys a quick story about West Sun So, hey, um, I w- we were on a, Kira, a Eastern Caribbean cruise on Carnival, and our last stop was at the in the Bahamas, and they shuttled us over once we we're on shore. They shuttled us over to the Atlantis Casino, which is gorgeous, and uh, we were we got separated my wife and I in a group got separated and uh I kind of fell behind as watching some guy win a bunch of money on a blackjack table and I had to hustle to get back with the group and I started I hustled and, and started ru- kind of almost running walking around this giant fountain and I wasn't even paying attention and I ran into this guy and bumped into him and I looked up It was Wes Unseld, and he looked like a giant to me. I'm not, you know, I'm only about six feet, but uh, he, I I said, hey, man, and then I said, hey, I know you, and I pointed, and I couldn't remember his name. He said, hey, Wes Unseld, and I I, I work here now. I'm one of the hosts. I just, He says, we want to welcome you. I I said, Wes, man, it's so cool. I knew exactly who you were, but couldn't remember the name. I was just in shock. And he was—he couldn't have been nicer, I, you know. And I'm sure he was that way to everybody. But man, what a player! I love watching that guy back in the day. But just wanted to pass on pass that on to you guys. When right. was this? When was this? This was, let's see, about uh, 13 years, 12 okay. years ago. Okay, right about then. Well, yep. thank, thanks for hey. thanks
1: for a few minutes, and good luck with that Costco shop
5: oh yeah thanks hey uh pk how's your golf game i saw you i met you up at the promontory once you ever play up there or victory ranch these days uh, i've never played
2: at victory ranch i've played at promontory probably four or five times and my golf game is okay yeah i would like to be a little bit better but it's okay i can't complain
5: all right well you get a chance you got to play victory ranch club i I, my friend works up there part-time now. He moved over from Promontory, and I played up there. Uh, that, that course is unbelievable. So if you get a chance, get up. Okay. All right, there it
1: is. Thanks for the call. Just for the record, PK's, PK's not above using, uh, you know, whatever goodness you're feeling in your heart to get himself a better round of golf. Am I right, PK? <laughs> somebody wants to hook you up. Yeah. You're not totally opposed to that.
5: Well, I keep that open. I have a friend. will call my friend. <laughs> okay, there <laughs> thanks, you go. Guys. All right, thanks. Take care. there you go.
2: Yeah, I've pulled some strings to uh, get in. I know somebody who uh, plays golf at various uh, country clubs, and occasionally he invites me. There you go. And uh, you know him too, and uh, so uh, you get an opportunity to play. And I haven't, but I've heard. Of, I've never played Victory Ranch. I've heard a lot about it but I have not. I've been up there at the Jack Nicholas course. What is the Red Ledges? Promontory has two. I've played them. Uh, uh Glen Wild I've played, but I've not played Victory Ranch and there's one other one Tuhey or something I think it's called in that Tuhey, yeah. Yeah, I haven't, I haven't played either of those.
1: Yak, have you played? That was very assertive. No, I, <laughs> I, just, I just know the courses up there. I've got some okay. family members who have played them, and I'd like oh, to yeah. play them. <laughs> they're,
2: right. all, they're all beautiful. I mean, one is yeah. as gorgeous as the next. Sure. I, I love stories like that of guys who come in contact with people. I told you, and it happens from time to time. Uh, standing in a security line with Steve Nash, standing in a security line with Ricky Henderson. Ricky Henderson on a Sunday morning at 8 o'clock. Uh, a few years back looked like a million bucks, a Hall of Fame baseball player who looked like he could get back out of the diamond right then, man. He looked like he, he looked exactly the same as when I saw him on television and in the and the security line, you know, switchbacked and people word got to be circulated. That's Ricky Henderson. And people were once so when they switch back, they would talk to him and he was just so pleasant to everybody. And, you know, you. That's what I'm saying. We talked about earlier how we look up to these sports figures and Steve Cleveland talking about how, you know, they have not necessarily an obligation, but they certainly have a platform if they want to speak. And hopefully they do it in a responsible manner because they can influence people for the good if they do it in a manner that, well, I don't want to say the right way because the right way, the term, it's open to interpretation. But I would say maybe a responsible way of doing it because they can really lead us or help lead us. And young people look up to them. It's just a matter of fact, and it'll always be that way.
1: Well, Wes Unsell was a, uh, a big name for my youth. I mean, I was, uh, we were talking earlier about high school basketball. And so when I was in elementary, junior high, and high school, you know, there'd be one game on on the weekend, right? But his teams were good, and they, they were on plenty of times. And so I was just reading up on him. Uh, in the last break, and after retirement, uh, his wife opened—well, actually, before Wes retired, his wife opened a school— in 1979, a co ed private school, uh, daycare, nursery school, kindergarten to eighth grade curriculum. Uh, he worked as an office manager and the basketball coach. Uh, daughters uh, taught, daughter taught in the school. Uh, it was a family affair. And if you cl- I wonder, I clicked on the school and uh, the reviews are awesome. So after basketball, the un- Unsells did some pretty good work. Good. All right, DJ P.K., it's 97.5 at 1280 The Zone. Ben Anderson, Utah Jazz radio studio analyst, joins us next. How are the Jazz equipped for the playoffs in Orlando? And we'll talk with him about that next. Stay with us.